1980, the debut novel by Molly Prentice about a synesthetic critic, an artist, and a determined young woman as they find their way amid the New York City art scene of the 1980s. And from Lumosity, offering a 10-minute fit test to challenge memory, attention, and problem-solving. With brain games to calculate baseline scores and build a brain training program, performance can be compared with global averages. Learn more at Lumosity.com. And good morning. Thanks for joining us for the Diane Ream Show here on KJZZ. We've got Here and Now with Steve Goldstein coming your way next. Set an alarm, get the headlines, listen to KJZZ Live to start your day, and get the latest episode of the show and Here and Now. It's the show on KJZZ with Steve. It's on the KJZZ mobile app. Just swipe the toolbar to find all the features. Get the app today at the App Store or Google Play. Well, a partly cloudy day for the Phoenix area today, a high near 88. We might see some rain as well. Mostly sunny for the next couple of days. Going to get warmer with highs of 95 and 97 by Friday. We're seeing reports of a storm down in the Globe area right now. That's producing hail. And we're going to possibly see some rain here today in the Valley as well. Even if you don't know much about art, you could probably recognize a trademark Warhol, right? Tomato, black bean onion, pepper pots, um, all kinds of different soups. I'm Kai Rizdal. The soup cans that went missing. We'll have that the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street all next time on Marketplace. And you can hear Marketplace tonight at 6 on member-supported KJZZ-FM Phoenix and HD, a service of Rio Salado College. You can find us on our mobile app and on Twitter at KJZZ Phoenix. Mostly cloudy, 76 degrees right now in Phoenix at 11 o'clock. The campaign related to Proposition 123 in Arizona has been going on for months, and after Election Day, the dust has finally settled. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about what's next for K-12 education in Arizona, what kind of commitment is the legislature willing to make for funding, and what sort of leadership does the business community need to show. I'll be joined by Rebecca Gao and Pearl Changi Saw. Plus, the longtime tradition of attending college for four years and getting a bachelor's degree is rapidly changing. Tens of thousands of students attend community college while holding down jobs, and others go to trade school. In his new book, There Is Life After College, author Jeffrey Salingo explores the expanding options. I'll talk with Salingo. Also, the new film Money Monster explores the impact of a TV host on individual stock market investors. We'll talk about how media cover business and investing. And a world premiere musical in Phoenix digs into the life of Walt Disney. Director Larry Rabin joins me. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, the long tradition of attending college for four years and getting a bachelor's degree is rapidly changing. Tens of thousands of students attend community college while holding down jobs. Others go to trade school. I'll talk with author Jeffrey Salingo about his new book, There is Life After College. Also, the new film Money Monster explores the impact of a TV host on individual stock market investors. We'll look at how media outlets cover the stock market and investing. We start today's program with some numbers on Proposition 123, the K-12 funding plan that would increase the money that goes to schools from the state land trust. Voters were extremely split, almost right down the middle. At this point, with about 100,000 ballots, including provisionals yet to be counted, yes on 123 is ahead by nearly 9,000 votes. The pro-123 side spent millions, while anti-123 didn't do much in the way of fundraising. So what tipped those results? With me to discuss the politics behind it in the campaign is Barrett Marson of Marson Media. Barrett, good morning. 
Good morning, Steve. How are you today? Well, I'm long, good. Long night last yeah, night. I was wondering how late you went to bed. I mean, I don't really want to get uh, into your personal life, but yeah. <laughs> it was well after midnight, for sure. So 123 was expected to be close, uh, but even you contacted me and a few other, others did yesterday thinking, well, this is going to be really close. So why so close? You know, I really think that the, the part of the problem for 123 is state land trust reform. Always a very difficult topic. It has failed numerous times at the ballot box. So that's number one. Number two, this didn't have buy-in and strong support from everyone who should have been at the table. Remember, this was sort of pushed through the legislature, and not everybody was happy with it. Democrats weren't necessarily on board uh, at the beginning. Some of them later turned, but they were never truly on board. And when you compare that to, say, the uh, pension reform, which, you know, we're not even talking about that today because it passed with about 70%, you know, there it had everybody on board, months and months of stakeholder meetings. And so there was no opposition. This is was different. Not everybody was on board on this. Some of, some people just went along to go along, but were never really excited. And I think that was a big problem from Prop 123. And what about the date? What about holding it in May as opposed to waiting till November? Well, you know, when you get to an election like this, it is only the most, uh, you know, committed people who will vote. You know, in 2010, we saw about a 38 percent turnout for the one cent Governor Brewer sales tax. We're going to see much less than that, maybe 30 to 33 percent turnout, depending on how many votes are still outstanding. So it was a low turnout, which just meant people who were really informed and really had an opinion turned out. And that may have also hurt. You know, Barrett, there was going on. Yeah, there were some critics that we heard from who had said, well, this is, in essence, a cop-out, that this is one of those things where we should hold the legislature's feet to the fire and continue with the lawsuit and that sort of thing. Are those people being unrealistic? Let's throw that out there, this idea that, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people would say that the Prop 123 option was not great, but it was much better than the alternative. How big an impact did that have? Well, I, I think that's a, another big reason. Even the pro-Prop 123 TV ad started off with, hey, the state hasn't done its job. So voters, please take up the slack from where the legislature has failed you. And that is a factor, I think. People looked at that and said, why should I get people that I elect off the hook for doing their job? Shouldn't they do their job? And that's, I think that was a factor for a lot of uh, you know, people who decided – I want the legislature to step up, make some hard choices, make the calls that I send you to Phoenix, to the state capitol uh, to do. And I, I definitely think uh, maybe, you know, for some Democrats, that was I'm going to vote no because I want to see the state legislature actually work this out. Uh, you know, this, a lot of this money is owed already to the schools. I want to see them actually take care of this problem rather than give them a free pass. Well, so does the closeness of this vote then legitimately send that message? Is it received? No, because at the end of the day, you know, as long as this passes by one vote, um, you know, legislature will be off the hook and uh, the schools will get money over the next 10 years. And, you know, uh, six months from now, no one will remember the closeness of this battle. So, Barrett, finally, what does this do, if anything, to the power base of Governor Ducey, the influence he has? 
Oh, I don't think that is necessarily impacted. I mean, uh, 2018, uh, he's still sitting in very good shape, uh, of course. Uh, I think, you know, he put a lot of weight behind this. No doubt he raised, he helped raise a lot of money, and this was his plan. Again, so long as it passes by one vote, uh, the governor is going to be in, in very good shape. Barrett Marson of Marson Media, good to talk with you as always, Barrett. Thanks. Hey, thanks a lot, Steve. Bye-bye. This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. So now that we know the outcome of Proposition 123, kind of, sort of, it's time to look at what might be next for K-12 education in Arizona. With me to discuss that, Rebecca Gao, Executive Director of Stand for Children Arizona, and Pearl Chang Esau, President and CEO of Expect More Arizona. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. And Rebecca, let me start with you on this one. So Based on the closeness, before we get into some policy issues, uh, based on what you heard, the work that you have done, did you expect it to be this close? And were some of the reasons that Barrett cited the same ones you'd think of? Yeah, absolutely. I think we understand and heard a lot of the distrust from the legislature and that same sentiment. And then you also had the sentiment that I heard from folks that it feels like they're constantly being asked to vote on education funding. And so it was a very complicated issue and in a special election um, that does make it really um, tricky to get the messaging out. Pearl, what are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this was a complicated issue. It was a settlement of a lawsuit. Um, it wasn't really a straightforward source of funding. The land trust is complicated. Lawsuits are complicated. So I do think that had a lot to do with it. And then I think there's the sentiment that this is, you know, that there are more steps needed. And um, what we saw in talking to voters all over the state was that regardless on of what side of the um, debate they were on for Prop 123, um, there was almost unanimous agreement that next steps were needed. And so some people felt that they need, wanted more money for education or they didn't feel like this was the way that education should be funded. But I think the good news is that education funding is a top priority and how close the election results are is not an indication that support for education is lukewarm. I promise you both we're not going to spend too much time on the politics, but I'm still curious to follow up on that, Pearl. This idea that even if it turns out passes, actually goes through, whether it's 9,000 votes, 12,000 votes, whatever it may be, ultimately a win is a win, and that indicates that enough people do believe in the next step. Because I think there are some people who are worried that this shows some sort of lack of enthusiasm, which would then make certain elected leaders say, well, maybe people aren't that committed to it. Maybe they don't really care that much. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's the case. I think that um, we've built a lot of momentum around education funding, and uh, I mean, one of the results of uh, the Prop 123, um, you know, just the process that's led up to this is that I do think there's a broader and even more diverse coalition in support of education funding than there ever has been. And I think that that needs to continue to grow. And so regardless of whether people were for this or against this, which there are education advocates on both sides. Um, you know, if this passes now, we need to come back together. And even if it doesn't pass, especially, right, we need to come back together and take the next steps to achieve a long-term sustainable funding plan. Rebecca, follow up on that, please. Yeah. And I do think that's something that we all need to be very very passionate about that it's not enough to vote no and walk away this time it's not enough to walk yet to vote yes and walk away this time either way we have to stay committed and you know for for those of us who are in this as our day jobs like we talk about this all the time and i think the closeness of the vote the lack of voter turnout indicates to us that 
the public needs to stay engaged and it's hard to have them disengage and then it becomes an issue again and we get fired up again. Um, I think we have an ask of voters and the general public to stay involved, stay engaged and keep fired up. Um, and we have lots of opportunities to do that now thanks to groups like Stand for Children and Expect More Arizona. Yeah, there are some people who when money is on the ballot or changing the Constitution is on the ballot, they just blanch at that generally. Um, can education, can K-12, Pearl, start with you, can it improve as dramatically as people here who want it to without an influx of a lot of money? You know, um, Arizona was one of the deepest cut states of any state in the country during the Great Recession. Uh, we lost, you know, over 20% of per pupil funding. We did that at a time when we were raising standards, we were raising expectations, we were raising the bar for Arizona students. Uh, as you know, we're now seeing uh, a massive teacher shortage. We're having trouble attracting and retaining teachers in this state because we pay our teachers at 75% of the national median, so we're not competitive. And we are having real issues, and I think that um, that's why we're seeing, as we poll likely voters, that education funding is the top issue now, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. You know, when, we've got, when you've gotten cut all the way to the bottom and schools are considering four-day school weeks, it's just, it's clear that, um, you know, obviously we want better student outcomes, but it's clear that funding is a part of making sure that that happens. And I think we've also heard from employers in the business community that our workforce needs are simply not being met by the pipeline that we have. And there's a, a very significant awareness now, I think, in, in the employer community that this is a bigger problem than they've been willing to acknowledge in the past. And I think that does present a fantastic opportunity to keep this dialogue, whether or not Prop 123 passes, mm -hmm. more has to be done, both in terms of the families that improve their quality of life through education, but also in terms of our economic development as a state. But in essence, money has to be a huge part of that equation. It's hard to say not when we're yeah. at the very basement, right? Um, and you can have lots of interesting policy discussions about does money matter and, and all that. Um, but then we end up in this really catch-22 argument in the education community where then they're telling us, well, we don't want to fund failure. We want to fund results. And then you look at our NAEP results, and in eighth grade math, we did grow significantly. And then we hear, well, see, you can do it without money. So... It, it's really disingenuous, I think, to start us down, not for you, but when we hear that argument in other places, it's really tricky to start down that path because the fact is we were we were cut over a course of years. It's affected the classroom. We need to at least start with repairing that mm -hmm. and then think about what our state needs to be head of the pack and leader economically and then fund that. And, Pearl, before we go to break um – this idea of where the money should go first. I mean, talking about teacher shortage and competitive pay for teachers, how high atop the list is that for you? It's the top. Okay. I think that if we want Arizona to have a strong economy and a high-quality education system, the number one thing we need to do is attract and retain great teachers in our state. And salary is an important part of that. Mm -hmm. And when we say retain, how much of that has to do with retaining teachers who are already here or teachers who are being trained here? I think it's both, okay. yeah. And we have to be able to compete in keeping our best um, teacher college graduates here in the state, as well as keeping those teachers who are doing a great job, but they simply can't afford to do their job anymore as they're you know, raising a family and paying for their basic livelihood. And Rebecca, briefly on teachers. 
I would completely agree. That's the most critical element in a classroom, and it is definitely one that the numbers show we're falling behind. Rebecca Gao is executive director of Stanford Children, Arizona. Pearl Chang Esau, president and CEO of Expect More Arizona. We'll continue our discussion right after this on Here and Now. KJZZ is supported by Arizona Center for Cancer Care. Fighting the war on cancers affecting women through customized treatment and a multi-specialty comprehensive medical approach. Don't fight alone. More at CancerAZ.com. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Be with us today at 1 for BBC NewsHour. Taking a look at some temperatures around the state at this hour. Partly cloudy skies, 76 degrees in Tucson. It's cloudy in 64 in Prescott. Cloudy in 51 in Flagstaff and down in Yuma under cloudy skies, 81 degrees. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Ross and Shirley Berg, as well as Karsten's Family Funds for their generous support in bringing programs like Here and Now and All Things Considered to KJZZ. To join the Leadership Society and impact our community every day, please visit Leadership kjzz.org. Mostly cloudy right now in Phoenix, 32% relative humidity, and it's 80 degrees at 1121. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. We're talking about Prop 123 and what comes next with Pearl Chang Esau, President and CEO of Expect More Arizona, and Rebecca Gao, Executive Director of Stand for Children, Arizona. So there has been this discussion of what comes next, and obviously 456 would seem to come next. And even if there isn't a formal 456, Rebecca, what should that look like? What should the priorities be? I think there's several funding priorities, but I think there's also an electoral step in the middle that's really important that, to me, the two go hand in hand, although it might not seem that way. So we do have Prop 301, which is our six-tenths of a, of a percent sales tax. It does need to be renewed. It does sunset. Um, so the sooner we start those conversations about making sure that gets renewed, the better. Um, I think there are opportunities also to potentially expand that. So that needs to be part of the conversation. You have the Governor's Classrooms First Council, which is looking at more efficient ways of getting money into the classroom with perhaps not increasing the size of the pie, mm. but there might be, you know, some issues that come out of that related to school funding that could help. Then you have the budget next year, the education budget, and so we need to keep on top of that and make sure that it continues to to grow. Um, I think there's some other ideas out there, but those are the key things in the next 12 months. But then you have the elections coming up in November, and this is our chance to tell the legislators that everybody's so angry with that we're going to vote with our vote <laughs> and maybe make changes at the legisl legislature and make sure that education champions get elected. I think we can't emphasize enough that that opportunity in November affects the education funding next steps. Pearl, what does 456 sound like to you? Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with Rebecca on a lot of the priorities for um, next steps that need to be funded. And I would also encourage us to think about it as the entire continuum because children need to show up to school ready to learn you know, set up for success in kindergarten. And um, that's, that's, that's an important element of it, especially because we have a lot of students in Arizona who are growing up in poverty and they aren't necessarily getting the language exposure or um, access to quality early, you know, education opportunities that they need. 
And then um, I'd also look at it from the other end, the workforce pipeline. Um, so I think a big reason why um, you saw so much of the business community rally around education funding as a top priority is because they're starting to see uh, a problem with their talent pipeline. And what we know is that by 2020, um, a majority of jobs are going to require more than a high school diploma. Yet right now, we only have about 42% of adults in Arizona who have attained more than a high school diploma. So what that means is we need to elevate the outcome of the entire education system so that when students graduate high school, they're ready to go on to additional career training um, or a degree. And again, that's going to require additional resources, but it's also going to require that we, you know, that we spend them wisely. Rebecca, as someone who worked for an administration, how complicated does that get to bring these stakeholders to the table and be on the same page? In Arizona, it's probably less complicated than in other states. Um, That's one great thing about Arizona is a lot of the folks that need to be engaged already know each other. We're so used to that dynamic. When we go visit other states, we learn the silos that exist that we don't have here. So so I do think often we don't realize that that is a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a great opportunity to keep moving forward. Um, and and I, I have seen the governor do it. And, and I think um, I hope that he continues to do it because that's the only way we're going to move forward. For people who are major K-12 advocates and public K-12 advocates, is there a concern, should they be concerned that there is any sort of battle between emphasizing public versus private. Can that be a concern when it comes to what is next after 123? Should that be a concern or should it just be about what's best potentially for Arizona kids? I think it depends on what you mean by public versus private and what kind of policies you're, you're referring to. I think to. there was concern about, uh, about vouchers. That mm-hmm. was something that came up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some people who in an ideal world want to see a balance, but there are some people who are afraid there won't be a balance, that one eventually will tip, that there isn't enough of a commitment to to public, traditional public K-12. And that could include charters as well. Right, under- right. So in terms of the voucher question, which in our state is the education savings account, I think a lot of us have been concerned about the accountability. And it's hard for Stan to take a, a position about expanding those without either academic or better fiscal accountability. So for me, that's just where the conversation stops, regardless of the philosophy of of, of vouchers and choice. Um, but I have seen a commitment to, to public K-12. I have. And I understand the fear. I, I do. Um, and it's really critical when you think about the low-income areas, even if you do philosophically believe in choice, the issues of transportation, the issues of information about what quality looks like, that there are over 50% of the kids in our state that are in poverty, and those families don't even have access within five miles of where they live to an A or B school. Um, so that is a serious issue that we need to resolve. And Pearl, I want to get your final thoughts on this as far as what's next and what you have belief in staying engaged, getting people to stay engaged? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a message in a major priority for Expect More Arizona all along has been that we want people in Arizona to be informed and, and engaged on education issues, and that's how we're going to uh, make sure that over time every child that's growing in our state really does have access to a great education. And one of the most important things that people can do along those lines is to vote. Uh, they need to 
vote, vote, vote. And if anything we saw from this election, there's very low voter turnout on an issue that had a huge impact on education. So regardless of pe whether people voted yes or no, we're glad they turned out to vote. Uh, we supported this proposition because we felt like um, this got much-needed funds in the classrooms immediately. It allows us to move on and work together to address other pressing um, issues in the future. But we want to, I hope, the message people take away here is that, you know, you've absolutely got to vote. And that's um, not just on election day, but, you know, reaching out to your elected representatives, holding them accountable, making sure that you're communicating with them year round. Pearl Chang Esau is president and CEO of Expect More Arizona. And Rebecca Gao is executive director of Stand for Children Arizona. Thank you both for the conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The new film Money Monster, starring George Clooney, begins with Clooney's character hosting a cable TV show that covers the stock market and investing with a lot of bells and whistles. And some critics have pointed to the not-so-subtle qualities the character shares with Jim Cramer of CNBC's Mad Money. There aren't that many films that delve real deeply into the intricacies of the stock market or investing. One recent exception is the Oscar-nominated The Big Short, with me for a few minutes to talk about Money Monster and The Big Short is Bill Goodykunz, film critic for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. Bill, thanks for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So how much of an effort was there to make it seem as though Clooney's character was knowledgeable about the market, or was this just more of a different sort of movie that turned into a thriller, let's say? Uh, it was sort of both. He He's clearly modeled on like the, the Jim Cramer kind of guy, you know, bombastic, although is it not just as some people find Kramer, this guy is, is more over the top. He, he he comes out with dancing girls and pop hats and sing songs and stuff. Um, and he, he's got his gimmicks. He's got, you know, the, the stops that you're supposed to follow, the stops, you know, the ones you're supposed to buy, the ones you're supposed to sell. And what happens in the film is, and I, this doesn't give anything away that isn't in the trailers or anything else, I don't think. Um, Jack O'Connell plays, who's a great actor, plays a, a guy who invests all his life savings in one of the tips that Clooney's character gave him, unbeknownst uh, to this guy's wife, by the way. But he um, he, uh, he he goes nuts, and he, he takes the place hostage. He's going to blow up uh, the studio, which would kill him and Clooney, and it would also kill Julia Roberts, who is Clooney's producer, and who is, by the way, excellent in this movie. I don't typically like her that much, but she's really good in this. Um. So this, I mean, but as you say, over time, they don't delve too deeply into why things went wrong. There is, it, it turns into a different bad guy who did a different bad thing. And in that way, it kind of turns into a thriller. It turns out not to be as much about the entire system as about how one person could manipulate that system. So how much of this should we take as relating to every man in the middle class who may have felt like, especially during the economic crisis, that the power brokers took him, his family down, maybe took his house, et cetera? Well, I think that you should probably not go take your local TV station hostage, for one thing. And that, <laughs> well, we that saw would... that in Arizona many decades ago, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, they tend to turn out uh, you know, kind of sideways sometimes. But um, 
I think it's clearly that there have been a lot of films, you know, as well as The Big Short. There have been other movies as well uh, that have really played into that feeling that, that a lot of people had, that they felt like they didn't feel like they got cheated. They did get cheated, and they're angry. And I think that films, it takes films a little while. You know, the curve is a little slower. You know, it's harder to get a movie made than to do some sort of rip from the headlines, uh, the TV series or something. Uh, but I think that the resentment is still there and, and the damage is still there for so many people that, you know, these movies have a real resonance. Uh, this now they go about it in a lot of different ways. Like I, like this movie is directed by Jodie Foster. It's really taught. I mean, there's no, there's not a wasted second in this movie and they, you know, it, and it turns into this kind of, you know, high intensity thriller, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you, you know, you, you still want people to go to the movies and, if you want a documentary, there's some pretty good one of those out there, too. <laughs> so, Bill, finally, how important do you think tone is when it comes to an issue like this, which, you know, the average viewer is going to be entertained. They're looking to get entertained. They're not necessarily looking for a lot of investment advice or hmm, does this get the intricacies of how the stock market works? So when it comes to that, does it have to sort of play the middle? Um, could we? Was The Big Short more of like a dramedy, for example? Well, the big, well, I'll say this. I, I think that you should probably not get your financial advice from a movie. <laughs> probably. Right. I don't, they don't put a warning like that at the beginning, but maybe they should because people do get it from people like Jim Cramer. But I think that The Big Short is hugely entertaining, and it's a great movie, and um, it's really funny. But they do these things where they actually stop the film, and out comes Margot Robbie uh, in, a, in a bathtub with champagne who explains – you know, sort of how stocks work or how the housing market works. Or then you have, um, you know, Selena Gomez and some world-renowned economist sitting at a table playing blackjack or shooting craps in Vegas. And then she explains with his help, you know, what, what, how you short, you know, the, 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 the market and that sort of thing. So he, he gives you what, what is it, the spoonful of sugar with the, helps the medicine go down? Right. Um, I think that that really helps. You're really getting some stuff. Now, I should say Money Monster doesn't try to do that to any great extent. But I think that's what made – Money Monster is a fun film, but Big Short is a really good film. And I would – I mean, it just kind of hits all, this, all the, the spots that it needs to. It's, it's really informative, but it's really entertaining. Bill Goody Kuntz, film critic for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. Bill, good to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. So covering the stock market and investing can be extremely complicated. What makes it move from day to day? How much influence can the TV hosts and personalities have? Susan Lasovich covered Wall Street, the dot-com boom, and the Great Recession for CNN and CNBC. She's also been a visiting professor at ASU's Cronkite School, and she joins us for a few minutes. Susan, thank you for the time. It's my pleasure, Steve. So based on all your years of reporting, does the stock market or investing lend itself to dramatic fiction on TV or, or the movies? I think so. And I would agree with Bill um, just because of the sheer drama. When you think about millions of people losing their jobs, about having no access to money, about having um, – you know, real concerns, as the Federal Reserve did, that ATMs might not work if, if massive amounts of extraordinary stimulus wasn't flooding through the system. And then you have these characters that are over the top, 
the traders, the CEOs making uh, extraordinary amounts of money and lifestyles that were lavish and, in fact, in some cases, criminal uh, lifestyles. So, um, yeah, I think it can lend itself to to um, the big screen. And in the case of the big short, I thought it was very successfully done. I would have to disagree with Bill, though. I'd say that the takeaway from me was when Anthony Bourdain, the great <laughs> chef, got on screen and explained how those crappy subprime mortgages worked. It's like taking three-day-old fish, and instead of serving it as an entree, you chop it up and you put it in a fish stew, and you can charge the same price. So I thought that was a very good way of storytelling. Susan, I want to dig in. We just have a few minutes. I want to dig into your expertise a little bit. Um, How different is good market or investing-related journalism and reporting from any other kind of reporting we see? Because for a lot of people, they think about math. They think about the numbers, and they get a little bit scared. And then they also may even be scared because they think, boy, the market went down one day. What does that do for my my future, et cetera? So how, how do you make it so it's understandable, but also, you know, you're a journalist at the same time? It's very difficult. Uh, I found that extraordinarily so during the financial crisis because things were happening that had never happened before. And to try to explain it and to put it into into understandable terms was a daily, if not hourly, challenge. But I would say there's a couple of things that people need to know. And one of them is that the stock market does do great things for people on a daily basis. It fulfills their retirement goals. It enables them to buy their first or second homes. It helps their kids go to college. So it, it behooves everyone to understand the stock market, especially when we don't have pensions anymore. So you are responsible, in effect, for your savings with 401ks. It's not taught very much in high school. So how do you do that? I think that it's, it, it is something that it's a give and take. Yes, I will tell you what the numbers do. I will tell you the direction, and I will tell you some of the catalysts. Like today, the stock market is going down because the Federal Reserve has hinted that there may be an interest rate hike as soon as June. But it behooves you to go and get additional sources of information. And in the digital age, it's all around you, and it's for free. So there's countless websites that will give you some enlightenment and will help you make better decisions. For a television reporter like myself, you know, I had very limited time, and you can understand that in the type of medium. But you can spend a lot of time and understand things much more clearly if you put a little time yourself. But Susan, what struck me about what you did is that there were, certainly you had a limited amount of time, there's no question about that, but the fact that you were someone who was an expert, whether based on your own work or because you talked to other experts, one of the things that actually is a, is a pet peeve of mine is at the end of newscasts sometimes, it's, well, here are the numbers, here's the Dow, here's the NASDAQ, and there may not be any context for it, or if there is context, it seems so limited. Like, well, they, you know, realize there are millions of shares being traded. It, it may not have been just this one factor or this one company. And I almost feel like there are higher expectations. If, if people are going to dip their toe into the water of this sort of investing news, you sort of want to feel like, even though, as you said, we should do our own work on it, the feeling is I, I want a journalist who does that to, to give me more than just a number. I, I agree with you completely. And stocks don't only go up, they do go down, they go up and down. And in fact, that's another thing is that, you know, if you look at Warren Buffett, for instance, the, the certainly most successful investor on the planet, 
he will, and this is poorly understood, is that he will say oftentimes that's when you want to buy a stock or buy a sector is when it's when it's coming down. It's just like buying a pair of Air Jordan sneakers. You want to buy them on sale as opposed to a full price. If you love the sneaker, right, it's the same sort of deal. So I agree there needs to be much more context. Uh, but I do find that uh, oftentimes the people just say, oh, well, you know, if stock market's going up, I want to get in. And in fact, really, you want to buy at the best price possible if you're looking at a particular sector or a particular stock. Now, Susan, I just have about a minute or so left. How broad do you think the audience is for market and investing news? Did it broaden before the Great Recession, and then since then, has it been slow to come back? Well, I do think that, you know, when the news is as bad as it was in 2008 and 2009 and 2010, I think audiences uh, stayed away, right? They, they, they knew what was happening. They knew that their salaries were going nowhere. They knew that they had to work a, a second job um, to try to make up for the salary shortfalls that they were feeling. Um, it, it was terrible that they had to take their kids out of private school or Catholic school or whatever and, and go to public school. I mean, there are all sorts of ramifications. Um, I, I, I do think that there is, though, a huge audience for it, and now I think that enough time has passed. I think that there, you, know, you have the baby boomers moving in on a daily basis into retirement. Uh, millennials, are, I think, need to know how to save and invest. So I think that it's um, a huge, huge audience, and I think there's so much media there for them in terms of applications, you know, mobile, um, you know, great sites that you can get on, on your phone, on your tablet. So in terms of media that's available, it, it's gotten better than ever. You just have to go for it. Longtime financial reporter Susan Lasovich. She worked for CNN and CNBC. She's also a visiting professor at ASU's Cronkite School. Susan, thanks for the time. Thank you very much, Steve. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll hear about a new musical based on Walt Disney. Plus, we'll find out whether there is indeed life after college. Stay with us. Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. Partly cloudy skies today in the valley. We're looking for a high near 88 degrees with a 30% chance for some showers. Looking to grow your business? Become a KJZZ business member and expand your reach with a philanthropic donation to KJZZ. Your business will connect with community-minded professionals who value public radio. Visit businessmember.kjzz.org or call 480-774-8274. We've got Here and Now from Boston coming up at noon. Divisions emerging in the Democratic Party after a closely contested primary in Kentucky and allegations of violence from Bernie Sanders supporters. And KJZZ's Jimmy Jenkins tells us about the end of dog racing in Arizona. NPR's Here and Now is coming up at 12. Mostly cloudy skies over Phoenix and 80 degrees at 1143. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Higher education is changing rapidly. Tens of thousands of students attend community college while holding down jobs. Others go to trade school, while some go to liberal arts colleges and universities for four years and get a degree. 
In his new book, There is Life After College, ASU professor of practice Jeffrey Salingo writes about moving away from the traditional four-year degree and how important that is when education and what knowledge is needed in a particular field is constantly in flux. And Jeffrey Salingo joins me now from Washington, D.C. Jeffrey, let's talk about uh, the big picture at first, which is a lot of people who follow higher education are seeing the track change dramatically. Maybe it's individualized. Maybe more people go to community college. Maybe more people decide to go to college later, not sort of the traditional 18 to 22. Do you think the traditional four-year college education at a liberal arts university is essentially passe now, or is it uh, limited to a certain number of people? Well, I think it's limited to a certain number of people, and in many ways it's always been limited to a certain number of, of people. We, we certainly have many more people in the United States now going to college than ever before, mainly because the bachelor's degree is now seen as some, in some ways as the new high school diploma. So it's required of more people, uh, of more jobs, and thus more people go, go to get it. And that, as a result, leads more people to follow varying pathways to the degree. So not everybody is going to go to a four-year residential college uh, at the age of 18. How important is the career track? Is the career track even more important now than it was, let's say, for me a couple of decades ago? Well, it's definitely more important um, because most employers now uh, are not training uh, new college graduates, and most new college graduates are not going to work in one occupation, and in many cases for one employer for the rest of their lives. So the key now is to get an education that combines both the best of the liberal arts and the best of practical vocational training. The problem is that there's a lot of tension in higher education around those two theories, this idea of vocational education and the theory of uh, liberal arts education, that you should have a broad education for the rest of your life. But for students who get both of them, who be able to get the inside the classroom experience, the liberal arts experience, and the outside the classroom experience, whether it's service learning or internships or study abroad or, uh, or undergraduate research, whatever form that experiential hands-on learning might come in, I think they're, they're going to be the most successful in the future because they're going to have a nice mix of both, both the practical and, uh, and the liberal arts. Does it make sense to you that whether someone, let's say, starts at 18 or works for a while and, and goes to college, even let's say on a mostly full-time basis in someone's early to mid-20s, does a person have to be even more ready now? And from that standpoint, I would say that it seems to me that if you're even a junior in high school, you should start thinking about, boy, right when I get to college, if I don't have a traditional job, better get an internship in a certain career track. I better be more prepared. There isn't time to even do a year or two of sorting, I don't want to say find yourself, but sort of knowing what you're, what you're good at. So how important do you think it is to know what your major is going to be and to know who to contact to make sure that you're, you're getting on the right track, whether it's internships or something deeper than that? You certainly can't explore in college like you used to. It's simply just too expensive uh, to kind of meander through college, t- take a bunch of different courses and try to figure out what you want to do there. But that doesn't mean we should rush this transition from high school to college to the workforce. If you know what you want to do, great. Go right to college, pick your major, do those internships, get that job. But for many students, I actually think we should take some time off after high school before they go to college to do some of that exploration, to get a job, to do national service, to do a gap year experience if you can afford uh, to do that. Students can take some time, six months to a year, uh, after they graduate from high school where they can do that exploration without the high cost of, of college. Then they go off to college much more serious, much more focused 
in their studies. They know what they want to do. The fact of the matter is that most people pick careers that are familiar to them. And at the age of 18, you haven't had a lot of access to careers and jobs. And so you have no idea what you want to do. Most students have no idea what they want to do. And so by getting these uh, gap year or bridge year experiences or taking this time off as a transition between high school and, and college, I think is going to be very critical to helping students launch four years later after they graduate. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with author Jeffrey Salingo. His book is called There is Life After College. He's also a professor of practice at ASU. Jeffrey, we talked a little bit about, you mentioned the costs of college. So how tough is it to balance finding a college where you can get, let's say, more hands-on experience, but also not fall into that deep debt, which has hit so many people? Well, I think there's a lot of great public options. There's a number of uh, colleges and universities now that offer co-op experiences, cooperative education, places such as the University of Cincinnati and Northeastern and Georgia Tech and Drexel, which enables you to actually work full-time while you're going to school um, and helps you pay for school. But not, not only that, it helps you figure out what you want to do in your, in, your, in your career. So, you know, college is expensive. There's no doubt about it. But there are definitely lower-cost, high-quality options today uh, for many students. And for some students, they now have the option to be working while they go to college and get that critical experience they need for the workforce. Because the fact of the matter is that too many students now don't work before they go to college for various reasons. Low-income students can't find jobs. Higher-income students are too busy with sports and other activities. And, and when they go into the workforce after college, sometimes it might be the first time that they've actually worked in a real job day to day. So the more experience they could get in college, the better off they're going to be when they actually get into that job market after college. And if they do have that so-called real job for the first time, how does schedule match up there? Because obviously there are a lot of students who are going to school and working at the same time. But there is sort of, it seems like there's, there's less flexibility, especially if you're a new employee somewhere. It's not exactly where you can say, you know, I'm going to take a, a mental break day or whatnot. This, the schedule, and also, and with, with smartphones, you're on call pretty much all the time. Yeah, I mean, obviously the job market has changed a lot for, for younger people. They're, they're kind of the last in line, and they have to kind of work the schedule as no one else has to work. The good news is on the other side, on the education side. Uh, institutions are much more flexible. So, for example, at uh, ASU, we, uh, we have now a shorter uh, semesters, seven-and-a-half-week semesters, in addition to the normal 15-week semesters. There's online courses in addition to hybrid courses, which are half online, half face-to-face. So many institutions, not enough in my opinion, but many institutions are much more flexible now. Um, at allowing students to work and go to school at the, at the same time. So you're not, um, you know, focused on, on school 24 hours a day, and you don't have to take classes only when the professors want to offer them. Millennials certainly are going to be moving around different career tracks, different jobs, whatever it may be. And when you have that and you know that that is the situation, are you better prepared simply naturally for change? I mean, there are people who had worked at a job for 30 years and then unexpectedly perhaps got laid off. When you're younger and you know that you're not expecting to be at a job for a certain number of years, does that make you better prepared and better better able to relate to that flexibility? Yeah, I mean, the number one skill that many employers told me they're looking for in today's new college graduates is this ability to navigate the ambiguity of the workforce. You know, no job is the same every day. No career, no occupation is the same five years today than it was five years compared to five years ago. And so the more that students get that flexibility and they understand that flexibility, and often that comes from job hopping through your 20s. You know, many older people always tell students, well, you know, you have to stay in a job X number of of years. I actually encourage 
young college graduates, new college graduates, to, to hop around jobs a lot through your, your 20s. The fact of the matter is there's too many occupations, too many jobs for any one person to figure out what they want to do before they graduate. So this gives you a good idea of the different types of jobs that exist uh, out there. But also investments in your human capital in your 20s. This idea that you're, you're going to learn different jobs, new skills. Um, in most cases, you're going to get more money the more often you, you switch jobs. That's only going to pay off for you in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's been often said that your 20s is the dress rehearsal for the rest of your life. So those decisions you make in your 20s are really going to uh, impact you both in terms of your career and in terms of your earnings later on. Well, that leads well into my final question, which is what is the impact of lifelong learning? And how much is that the responsibility of the individual to to know that in this changing world, you, you should be interested in a lot of different things, even as you get older and maybe the, the job market dramatically change once you're 20 or 30 years into the work world? You know, this is one of the big changes that I see in the job market today. It used to be, again, when you worked for one company and probably in one occupation for all of your life, your professional development was directed for you by your bosses and by your company. They told you what you needed to learn when you needed to learn it, and they often paid for it. The fact of the matter is now, as you switch jobs, and many people are self-employed in this gig economy, you as an individual have to figure that out. You have to figure out what skills you need, where to get those skills, and often, and unfortunately, you have to pay for them. Um, and that's going to trying to navigate this new learning economy. I think is going to be a critical skill in the future. And those who succeed are those who are going to navigate it well and and get ahead in their lives. Jeffrey Salingo, author of the new book There Is Life After College. He's also a professor of practice at ASU. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. It was great to be here. Thanks. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. The life of Walt Disney wasn't necessarily enchanted, even though the entertainment he's most identified with, like animated movies and fairy tales, made it seem that way. The PBS series American Masters recently dug deeply into Disney and what made him tick. And now in a world premiere musical called When You Wish, Phoenix Theater presents its take on Disney. And the show opens tonight. With me to talk about it is director Larry Rabin. Larry, good morning. Hi, good morning. Happy to be here. So, how exciting is it to delve into the life of someone like Disney, and how much of his life does the musical cover? Oh, uh, well, Walt Disney, uh, I love the fact that he touches everyone's life. I have such personal memories as a kid of it was the one time that we were able to eat dinner in front of the TV, so we would lay out <laughs> beach blankets on the floor in the living room and watch it, um, and you know, then, of course, going to the theme parks, all the movies, great. Um, having a chance to work on this musical is amazing to me because I didn't know anything about this part of his story. It starts when he's a six-year-old child on the farm in Missouri and takes us up through, that's 1908, takes us to 1937 and the premiere of Snow White. And then we jump at the very end of the show to the opening of Disneyland. So it's a whole part of his life that I knew absolutely nothing about. So once you learned more, did you find it inspiring? Did you find that a lot of people might have some commonality with that story? That, to me, was the real shocker. I assumed that he was just the greatest American success story. And the truth of the matter is, it it, it really is the quintessential American dream story. This is a man who saw things that other people didn't see. He kept inventing, he kept innovating, and he kept getting knocked down repeatedly over and over and over again. Things that he tried, people stole companies out from underneath him. He went bankrupt. 
And I just found that fascinating that his unflappable spirit just kept pushing forward. And now he is arguably the biggest entertainment icon ever in the history of of entertainment uh, humanity. I can't imagine anyone getting bigger because it just keeps snowballing. How does the spirit of that manifest itself in a show like this? How do you, as a director, make sure that, that what you're doing with and the people you're working with make it come across that way? Well, the we have a, a wonderful Broadway actor named Joey Swords playing Walt Disney, and the casting of Walt Disney was a really difficult task because you're trying to find someone that embodies the qualities of a personality that came into all of our homes and someone who's so personal to our families, our kids, our memories. You know, I go to Disneyland once a year and um, it, it, it has permeated uh, our psyche in the best possible way. So finding somebody that can tell the truth of who this man is and also give us the, the warmth and the grace of what his public persona was is a difficult task, but um, it makes for amazing drama and musical comedy. So does Walt Disney have to be likable for this show to work? And is that how much does the actor play into that? Uh, he, he has to be inherently charming. Okay. He has to be very likable, um, and he has to be unafraid of being the squeaky wheel in the room. He has to be unafraid of just continuing to push his ideas and his agenda even when he sometimes has to roll over somebody's foot to get the uh, cart moving. Have you worked on other musicals or plays that were based on a real-life figure? Oh, uh, no. This is actually the first biographic musical that I've directed. Um, and it was wonderful doing the research, um, really getting to know... Uh, what made him tick, uh, Dean McClure, who is the composer, lyricist, and playwright on the project, did extensive research. He has uh, a lot of friends within the Disney Corporation. He knew Roy Jr., Roy's son, and Diane Disney, who is Walt's daughter. And he was able to present many different drafts of the script to them. And they both said that Dean really captured the relationship between Roy and Walt, and that was very important to them. So hmm. they were really encouraging. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. We're talking with Larry Rabin about the new Phoenix Theater presentation. It's a premiere musical called When You Wish. It's about Walt Disney. It opens tonight. Uh, let's dig in a little bit more deeply of what kind of musical this is, because they're there's been a little, a little bit of a change to how musicals are presented, but there's also the traditional musical, which is the standby, which has thousands and millions of fans for it. Would you describe this as more of a traditional musical or something a little different? Well, I would say that it it is based on a traditional format, but it's innovative uh, in that Dean comes from the folk music world originally. Uh, he's also uh, scored some documentaries and things. And so his songwriting style has a pop flavor to it with a nod to the great show tunes of Jerry Herman and others. So it's an interesting blend. Also, the time period that we capture mostly is the 1920s and 1930s. So it has its own musical idiom and its own flavor. So to weave kind of a, a pop milieu through that is really interesting. Um, and the, the story itself, it's really a great love story between two brothers. But two brothers that um, locked horns a whole lot. You know, Roy said that he became a reluctant millionaire if it hadn't been for Walt continuing to push. Mm -hmm. He never would have been a household name and he never would have been rich. 
Is this the kind of musical that you will hope that when the audience leaves, even if it's not a song they're familiar with, they're whistling, they're singing, they're humming, something like that? Oh, they're definitely tunes people are going to take out with them. Um, uh, Dean has an amazing ear for melody and uh, for lyrics that like what Walt Disney did and what the Disney Corporation continues to do in their own films that really cuts to the truth of emotionality that makes you feel deeply um, and also really entertains. It's, it's that great mix. It's what I love so much, you know, Pixar is carrying on now. You find your laughing hysterically and crying all within the same film. And I think Dean captured that essence as I think Walt would be very proud of what he's done in telling his story. Larry, about a minute left, and I don't want to dig too deeply here, but I'm really interested because I think working on a story about someone like this who's clearly a genius yeah. is inspiring. Can it be intimidating at the same time? Well, sure. You don't want to shortchange someone of their genius. Uh, you you don't want to whitewash them. Um, yeah, we don't want to present a Pollyanna view of who and, wh- who and what he is. Um, and we have a great responsibility to capture his spirit. So, yeah, it, it's very intimidating. But uh, I think the results are amazing. And um, it's, it's a great, fun, funny evening. I think people are really going to love it. And they're also going to feel inspired to go out and create themselves mm-hmm. to change their destiny if they're not happy with it. Even though it's the early part of his life, any appearance of mouse ears that we should know about? Uh, we don't have any mouse ears happen until the very end of Act One. But um, yes, there is a certain mouse that plays <laughs> deeply into Act Two. And we also, uh, there's a good chunk of Oswald, who was Walt's earlier creation, who was an enormous hit. He's just now making his way back into the theme parks and t-shirts and things. But there's a lot of great information about Oswald, and it's great to see that early animation. Larry Rabin is the director of the world premiere musical called When You Wish, presented by Phoenix Theater. It opens tonight. Larry, thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their help on today's program. Thank you very much for listening. If you missed any part of the program, want to hear one of our past programs, you can always go online later this afternoon to kjzz.org. You can also download the KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.